really couldn't happen to a nicer chief executive. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Moodbeam, the first wearable for the mind, a simple device that lets you log how you feel at the push of a button. Visit us at moodbeam.co.uk to order yours. Together, we can change the way the world sees mood. Welcome back to The Really Cast. This week, we're going behind the scenes of the NHS and looking at why having mental health problems can actually make you a better leader in the health sector. It's shocking to think that some employers still feel concerned about employing anyone with a severe or enduring mental health problem in any kind of role. This kind of stigma still exists. And sadly, some people still feel frightened to disclose their mental health problems in the workplace. An equally ridiculous notion is that a business leader needs to be almost psychopathic in order to achieve good results. We've all come across this idea in the movies, the boss being completely devoid of empathy and feeling, barking orders, it's my way or the highway, do as I say, that kind of thing. But as much as it makes for a good story, in reality it doesn't make for a good leader. And if there's one place we need empathy and a people-first approach, it's the NHS. Of course, given the challenges the NHS continually faces, empathy alone won't cut it. But that's the other thing. Mental health problems are not personalities. You can be a dynamic and inspirational leader who has a severe mental health problem. And there are some arguments about mental health problems inspiring strength, drive and creativity. Although admittedly, this can be a controversial topic. So today I am chatting to somebody I find incredibly inspiring, Lionel Joyce, former CEO of Newcastle Mental Health Services, an inspirational leader who is in recovery from alcohol addiction and who manages his bipolar disorder day by day. So hello Lionel, welcome to the podcast, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, because today we're going to talk about your experience of being chief executive um, and also living with a mental health problem. So you're the former CEO of Newcastle Mental Health Services, um, which I think is now known as Northumberland Tyne and Weir NHS Trust. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit about your role there? Because obviously your career with the NHS was quite extensive and varied but if mm-hmm. you tell us a bit about the chief exec role and what was involved the chief exec role was only invented in 1985 and it was a response to margaret thatcher and she wanted to bring a more commercial managerial ethos into mm. the nhs which she saw as dominated by professionals and they're just to serve the interests of professionals and not the interests of patients mm-hmm. so they introduced a general management And then they moved to chief execs following a report by Roy Griffiths, who I think was a chief exec of Sainsbury's. And so I was the first ever chief exec of mental health services. Right. And that was a culture shock in two directions. The medical staff particularly had not been used to having a boss. Mm -hmm. And as a manager, I had not been used to being a boss (laughs) of medical staff. 
Yeah. Because up until that point, we used to say about consultants, they were responsible to self and accountable to God. Right. <laughs> right? Which led to all sorts of caricatures you'll have seen about self-important consultants, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And so there was this change going on. And I was, the experience I perhaps want to describe is the first day at St. Nick's which was, I think, the 1st of September, 1985. And I stood outside this enormous Victorian building Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, fuck. (laughs) I'm supposed to be in charge of this. Uh How the hell am I going to do that? I thought, this looks like Stalin's mausoleum. (laughs) Who the hell would want to be a patient in here? (laughs) And how have I got myself into this absurd situation? I'm clearly not capable. Mm. And then I got myself back into recovery head, which was, well, can you do it for today? Yeah. And I thought, well, I could probably be a chief exec for today, for this one day. So <clears throat> that was the that was the start of that particular bit of my journey. And you mentioned just there about um, recovery, recovery programs, and I think you're referring to 12-step there. But in terms of your career, you actually began in the NHS as an admin assistant. Oh, well, because what happened was my life was a complete (laughs) screw-up. I was on my fourth career, having just burned out really great opportunities. Mm -hmm. Uh, The opportunity to become a barrister, the opportunity to be a very successful civil servant, Charities, blah, blah. So I was now, at the moment when I made the decision to join the NHS, I was lying in St. Bartholomew's Hospital with a slip disc, mm-hmm. unemployed and unemployable, because I had been, I was four months out of a psychiatric hospital, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> which is absolutely not a recommendation to employers to employ you. Right? Mm. Guaranteed that if you said, well, because in February I was discharged from a psychiatric hospital having been there for nine months, nobody would employ you. Mm. Right? So I was lying there and my friend said, you need to join the NHS. I said, oh, okay. And he said, uh, here's the health services journal. Just apply for every job in the back of this journal. So I did. I applied for high clerical officer, general admin assistant, senior admin assistant in every hospital in Great Britain. Right. Right. Every year. And I lied, of course. Yes. On my CV. Yes. Um, you, you know, you've, yeah, you've spoken about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I airbrushed out all the bit where I was in a psychiatric yeah. care. And I got an interview in Nottingham for the personnel department. And I think because I was white, because I was male, and because there was full employment, and I had done time in Africa, like a good colonial, mm-hmm. they gave me this job mm-hmm. I mean, for absolutely all the wrong reasons. And um, and I started there. I think, I think that was no first of August, nineteen seventy three. Mm, yeah. So. Back in the 70s, I mean, there's still stigma. And we hear about workplace discrimination now. Obviously, you felt that you couldn't let them know when you were applying for jobs back then. Um, But 
as we were saying, there's still employers out there who may feel that somebody who's experienced mental health problems is certainly somebody who has been in a psychiatric hospital, that they might not think that they could be successful in a career, in a role. Why would you say that presumption is so wildly inaccurate? I mean, you're obviously living proof because <laughs> yeah, because you yeah. went from admin assistant to um, chief executive of um, mental health services in Newcastle. So what would your argument be to anybody who would think that coming out of um, psychiatric hospital meant that your options were limited? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure how to respond to that. Uh, one one response, and the world is now a different place. Mm. So there's a whole group of mental illnesses that people regard as likely to occur or they're likely to know about. So depression, yeah. anxiety, kind of they might have an expectation. So I'm not sure that would mark many people down. ADHD mm. starts to flag as a problem. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Bipolar, which is my diagnosis, is very interesting. Because you know people with bipolar are likely to be exceptional. Yes. Right? They're likely to also be a pain in the arse. <laughs> but they're also likely to be exceptional. Yeah. And that there's a long, huge list of people who've changed the world and changed thinking uh, who have that diagnosis. Mm. Schizophrenia, major problem. Mm. Right? And uh, I think employers' reactions to people with that diagnosis are still really problematic. Yeah. And it's a misunderstanding of what the diagnosis means. It's a complete misunderstanding of what voice hearing is. Yes. What paranoia is, what hallucinations are. So we've got an awful lot of work to do around people with that diagnosis, Mm -hmm. though it's going on. And uh, I think more education and more upfront... Well, Stephen Fry has done wonders for bipolar. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and as have one or two others, and that's that's really helping. Mm. So, so employers who are willing to want to no, employers who want the best are, will be wise to take that risk. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they will get much more than they bargain for. Yeah, and like you say, um, schizophrenia. There's a lot of a lot of stigma around it, but what's really interesting I think is that it's actually people obviously associate psychosis with schizophrenia um, and psychosis is hugely misunderstood Um, I've seen recently and it's something that I've written about is the um, series Killing Eve did you see that? I loved it yeah brilliant wasn't it brilliant and she played a brilliant psychopath Um, but a lot of people described her as psychotic Oh, did they? I saw, yeah, I saw quite a few people on social media and oh. even journalists talk about Villanelle as being psychotic. Oh, it's, I mean, that's such a complete misunderstanding. Yeah. It's a total misnomer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think the other thing is is that people are maybe scared of that because they don't understand it. And yet they also only associate it with schizophrenia, whereas psychosis can occur for so many Absolutely. reasons. So. Absolutely, and so many other conditions. I mean, depression can bring about psychosis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, so I suppose what you're saying is depending on your diagnosis, yeah. depends on, you know, and how much stigma there is around that diagnosis. Well, you'd go it. further, wouldn't you? If you were actually talking to a person and saying, I wish to employ this person, you would want to employ the whole person. Yes, yeah? All of their skills and attributes. Mm-hmm. 
And part of what people bring is actually their mental health and, in most cases, their mental illness. Yes. Yeah? And that becomes, depending how you respond to it, an asset or a liability. Yeah. And what we're saying is you have the ability to make this an asset if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And you've, you've uh, when we've chatted before, you've talked about how being in a senior role within the NHS, particularly in mental health services, having that lived experience was a really positive thing for you in terms of service design and, and patient welfare, etc. Can you tell us a bit more about yeah. that? So when I was... Well, this day one still, yeah. and I'm walking into the hospital, I'm thinking, well, the one thing I know is what it's like to be a patient. Yes. What it is like to be required to wear pyjamas because you've had your clothes taken away mm. and you're given a, a, you know, a washed, clean, but very tatty pair of pyjamas and a dressing gown and uh, you're asked to eat food you largely haven't chosen and mixed with people you absolutely wouldn't wish to be with and be bored stupid out of your mind on a psychiatric ward. And I thought that was a perspective that I really wanted to bring mm. to the job and to the, to the top table. Uh, it meant that I was instantly involved in how do I challenge the power structures here? Yeah. Because the power structures are <clears throat> very clear with the consultants and the most senior consultant at the top and the cleaners at the bottom mm -hmm. and then below them the patients. Right. Because the patients don't really count. Right. They're, they're not really important in hospitals because mm. <laughs> you know, they're going to come and go. And in fact, in St Nick's in 1985, that wasn't true. We had patients who'd been there years and years and years Yeah. for for no particularly good reason, certainly for no reason due to their mental health a lot of reasons to do with their social circumstances and not having anywhere to go not having anywhere yeah. to go not having the skills to live on their own and mm -hmm. so on and so forth and rehabilitation was a real poor sister mm -hmm. and the actual drive to help people to go and live in the community wasn't very great the idea of closing a hospital was still seen as nasty and there's some grounds for for that um, but my job then became to challenge that hierarchy yeah that involved challenging night nursing mm -hmm. because night nursing was potentially predatory and patients were I'm pretty certain being preyed on by some of the nursing staff particularly at nights I mean sexually right um and uh, the structure would have allowed that to happen. Mm -hmm. And the question was, how do you break up a cabal of uh, nurses who actually controlled the hospital? Right, yeah. Right? The doctors didn't, the nurses did, and they did it in the social club. Mm -hmm. and, that, and in a way, you could see how it would come about, because a number of those staff were third-generation nurses born on St Nick's site. So their parents and their grandparents all lived on the hospital site and worked in the hospital and worked in the hospital social club. And that structure doesn't allow for lots of fresh air yeah. and new thinking and challenge indeed the, the systemic hold over a number of individuals when it got broken was seen as a great relief, yeah. not as a threat. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I was. I didn't set out to win any popularity contests <laughs> at all. What was always a surprise and a delight was to find how many nursing staff really wanted to improve patients' lives, and they really did. Mm. And they would go the extra mile, and they'd they'd be challenging me to find extra funds or extra staff. And there were some wonderful, wonderful charge nurses and uh, sisters who were absolutely keen to help people to to live in the community, to change the circumstances in which they lived and how they lived. And releasing that energy was just fabulous. Mm. So it led to the first ever NHS nursing home. Right. There was no such thing as an NHS nursing home. And a nurse, um, Tom Carpenter, came to see me. He said, the way we treat people with dementia, absolute disgrace. What are you going to do about it? I said, what do you need? And he said, I need individual rooms, I need personalised clothing, I need a dog, I need this, and I need this. And I said, okay, it'll take me about three months to find the money, mm-hmm. and then you come and run the ward. So I I took money off every single ward in the hospital. I took 2%, I think. And it was a, it was a weird, it's like 250,000 quid, which you know wouldn't buy you anything today. Mm. But that bought him all the staff he needed to set up a completely new ward. We took over um, Porter Cabin in the grounds and um, he made it happen. And it was really revolutionary. So it was really about finding the passion and the drive amongst the staff that were there yes. and, and empowering them yes. to put patients yes. first. Which is what a number of them had always wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, that was it. Absolutely right. Yes, it had to be the clinical staff. It needed a clinical lead. And uh, and my job was to facilitate and enable them. Fantastic. Not to do it. Yeah. So, obviously, you, you had experience in psychiatric wards yourself, personally. Um, would you tell us a bit about what led you to becoming admitted as an inpatient? It was a suicide attempt. Two suicide attempts fairly quick one after the other and um, I realised that it was very probable I was going to be successful Right. and I couldn't work out it seemed to me on one hand that was a really good idea and uh, you know, if you weigh the balance of me being alive versus me being dead me being dead was a much better option for society, for my family and friends and for me mm-hmm. that, was, that was your belief? That was, very clear. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, there was this nagging, you're going you're gonna to fuck it up again, you know. You, mm. you simply don't have the balls. You're not a man enough to kill yourself. Mm. Right? So that was the, the dialogue that went on. Led me to Samaritans, that led me to an A&E department, that led to me being told that I was going to go to Springfield, which is a huge psychiatric hospital in Tooting Beck, um, or... If I chose not to, they would section me. Right. So that was how it was presented. It yeah. was presented like that several times. Um, so I was taken there at midnight, met some nice junior doctor who banged me full of largactyl, and I don't think I thought straight for three days. Gosh. Um, you know, mm. I was really pretty drugged up. and um, And then I had... 30 days on that particular acute admission ward. Um, 
What I particularly remember was the, oh God, what's it called? The case conference, mm-hmm. which was, I mean, it was outrageous, really. I was, when I thought about it subsequently, I was furious. But I mean, subsequently, I mean, years later. Um, I was taken into a room with 20 people, 22 people, yeah. something like that. And the consultant pontificated um, that this was what was wrong with me and that the sister had recommended I got transferred to this other hospital. So that was what was going to happen. And then he said to me, do you agree? And I went, yes. And he said, right, off you go. Yeah. And so the idea of me participating meaningfully yeah. in, in my decision taking, which is nonsense. Yeah. Um, and that made me, well, very suspicious of that whole way of behaving. Yeah. Um, and it was something, again, that needed challenge. How do you empower a patient who's really unwell and being confronted by teams of professionals mm. deciding their future? Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it's a power structure that's so ridiculously unbalanced. Yeah. And and you could argue that having control and choice taken away from you really impacts negatively on self-esteem and therefore mental health. And, and I suppose that's what we were talking about before, is that kind of institutionalised cycle that some mm-hmm. people were getting stuck in. And it also sounds to me like some staff were in way back in the day because they were generation after generation after generation. So there was this cycle of people stuck in a system that at the time wasn't progressing until you came along. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are are several different systems we need to look at. Because if you think about medical systems, Mm -hmm. and I watch consultants trapped in medical systems, Mm -hmm. this is the way you need to think about this issue, right? You medicalise it, you look at DSM, whatever it is now, five, yes, you arrive at a diagnosis, you apply the diagnosis, that gives you the treatment, you follow the treatment. Yeah. And then you won't be criticised. Then you won't be criticised, and if you go to court, you will be defended, right? Yeah. Not, you are a human being. Here is another human being. Why don't the two of you relate as human beings? Yeah. Right? Which is... What I would hope from any caring professional ultimately to do, but it's dangerous. And with people who are mentally ill, it can often be quite quite difficult to do. So it takes time. Yeah. So you need to give time. You need to give empathy. Well, God damn it! You know, I, it's really a big ask. Yeah. And many uh, consultants are not up to it. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, so they've got their system. How do you be a medic? Then there's how do you be a nurse? Yeah. Right? And that used to be tender, loving care, just do for the patient what they cannot do for themselves. And then it became, no, we are professionals. I'm a nurse who delivers CBT. I'm a nurse who delivers ECT. I'm a nurse who delivers da 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 And so they started to define themselves by their professional skills mm-hmm. rather than by their humanity. Yes. So there was a lot of pigeonholes. Yes, and a lot of reluctance to be a human with a human. Because actually, if you're a human with somebody, um, with a a not untypical person with mental illness, you're concerned about actually their family, 
their parents, their parenting, their early life experience might turn out to be pretty ghastly. You're struck with their homelessness. They've got nowhere to live. You're struck with their lack of relationships. How many meaningful relationships they have in their life. Oh, Jesus, it's really, it's overwhelming, you know. Oh, God, let's just reduce it to a few symptoms. Let's yeah. reduce it to something I can manage. So I'm not unsympathetic to the way staff deal with that. Mm. Uh, I am saying what we've created is another series of institutionalised systems that don't actually do what we need them to do. Mm. So the people who are working within them are more often than not obviously doing the best that they can, but yep. within boundaries that have yep. been created, which means that, I guess, people, and, and you still see this today, are are not getting that holistic person-centred care. So drug and alcohol services are a good example, I think, aren't they? Because you've got local authorities delivering and then you've got NHS delivering mental health services. So people are, are kind of having to deal with one than the other. So which comes first and how, how does that affect people? Well, they've got this absurd category called dual diagnosis, which is for people with mental illness who've also got an active drug and alcohol problem. Mm. And they end up being bounced all around the system and endlessly given no treatment. Yeah. We're not going to treat your mental illness because you're drunk. We're not going to treat your drunkenness or your alcoholism because actually your real issue is that you're bipolar. Yeah. Right? And actually, people with bipolar overwhelmingly use alcohol to manage their, their difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a quite a sensible thing to do in the absence of any other yes. drugs. Yeah? <laughs> uh, so, how are we going to get the NHS to change its systems to genuinely help that group of people? I don't know. The other huge group are people where the mental health is a consequence of social factors. Yeah. Poverty, major, major problem. Homelessness or poor quality housing, major problem. Lack of relationships, loneliness. Mm. I mean, it is a really big problem, but I don't see a will or the capacity within our present systems to respond to it. Yeah, and it's interesting what you were saying there about um, drugs and alcohol as self-medication, which yeah. is what people in desperate, often crisis situations are, are doing and using. Yeah. And um, obviously then that can become a, a problem in itself. I've seen some terrible uh, examples of stigma around addiction where it's almost being put out there that it's a lifestyle choice. What would you say to somebody who would argue that? It's very difficult. I was having this conversation with somebody earlier today to try to help her to understand why her sister behaves in such a bizarre fashion, mm. which of course is not at all bizarre to me, um, getting drunk off her brain, yeah, using heroin, mm. losing her children. Yeah. Right? Why would you choose to lose your children? Answer, of course you wouldn't bloody choose to lose your children. Mm. Right? What happens is the pull of the addiction is so overwhelming, so compulsive, that you absolutely do not have a choice about it. And if you've not experienced it, I, um, you will not understand it. And that's why people in recovery put big emphasis on other people in recovery to help them because it is such madness and until you have been in that madness of going this decision is totally self-destructive and is really going to hurt me 
but actually I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. Yeah? And so the notion of suicide is quite common because actually being dead looks so much easier than being alive. Because yeah. being alive requires this constant pursuit of the drug, yeah. of trying to not be Lionel. Please don't let me be Lionel. Mm. God, it's just fucking awful being Lionel. And uh, <laughs> I'm getting back there. Um, it, it, and it really is just awful and so painful and hopeless um, that, that getting, getting away from being me is just overwhelming. just got to happen. There are no consequences I won't endure in order to not be me. And having obviously been there and been through that and un- understanding that, you've, um, you've done a lot of work to support people who have experienced mental health problems, yes, but also specifically drug and alcohol problems. So um, the Road to Recovery Trust, yeah. obviously being one, can you tell us a bit about that and why, that's, why you're so passionate about that? It's kind of an odd thing, and I want to start somewhere slightly different, mm-hmm. which is I would say that I don't do anything to help people with drug and alcohol problems. What I do is try to help myself stay clean and sober and well. Right. And in order that I stay clean and sober and well, I try to help other people mm-hmm. to not be well, to mitigate this, the, the effects of their illness and maybe to to get well. And that's what led to the Road to Recovery Trust. Um, there have been a group of us trying to get a residential rehab and that had led to a day rehab, oak trees in Gateshead, run yes. by Changing Lives. And um, we then went on to talk about the other priorities And how could we take the values of recovery to a wider group, particularly to work environments and what have you? And by, well, I don't know how I am, but the group of us were meeting. One of our members um, did a fundraiser. It raised 14,000 quid in one night. Wow. It means, I know, it's extraordinary. (laughs) It meant we had to create a charity because you can't have that sort of money ungoverned. Yeah. So we had to set up a charity. So we had a charity, 14,000 quid, and we didn't know what we wanted to do with it. We mm-hmm. had no plans for it. We hadn't originally planned to have a charity. Um, and then that was in November, November the 11th of, of, of 2011. February 2012, somebody came and knocked at my front door here and said, I want to give some money to your charity. And uh, he said, what do you need? And I said, well, we need better detox facilities. We need a residential rehab. We need a social space because we're getting lots of younger people. They need to meet in a, in a safe space. They need to socialise. Da, da, da. And he said, oh, I'll have that one. Uh, I said, how much? And he said, oh, 150000 Wow. Um, so that started the journey yeah. towards what's now George Street Social, and then another of our trustees said, oh, Public Health England are putting some money out, I think we should bid, so she did, and next thing I know we had another 124,000 quid, and so this has all happened despite me, and despite most of the trust trustees, it's, it's just happened, and so you kind of go, well, 
clearly that's the right thing to happen, so we'll carry on and do it. Go with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, George Street Social is, um, uh, like say, it's a safe space for people to meet. It's um, it's a dry bar, yeah. obviously, um, with a great cafe. Yeah. But it's um, it's a place where there's a lot of peer support activity, so it's, there's a lot of 12-step recovery. Yeah. But also what I find interesting and, and great about it is that it's very inclusive in terms of it's not just a place for people who um, are in AA or a place for people who have problems with narcotics. It's it's a place for people who have lots of mental health challenges, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there are all sorts of groups happening there and forming and all sorts of social, as well as perfectly normal people from Newcastle <laughs> College just coming and having nice food and coffee. Yeah. Um, and I think finding that this is an atmosphere slightly different to the majority mm. because actually there's a real acceptance of um, the fact that many people struggle with this idea or that idea or this feeling, that feeling, mm. yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. You, you can talk about that, you can have that mm. there and then and it'll be fine. And have you seen from within that community, have you seen examples of people going from crisis point to finding inspiration and and forming new friendships maybe starting a new career getting their children back that kind of thing there's an extraordinary number i mean an extraordinary number of people who i could introduce you to who have exactly that experience they've gone from desperation homeless lonely lost children being removed partner gone um, through to completely successful lives. Mm. Sometimes it's, it's not normally a quick process, so we're mm. talking a year, two years to start to get a real sense of balance and ownership. But the, um, the success rate for people who do keep close to 12-step recovery seems to be fairly impressive. Yeah. And if you could say something to somebody who was struggling with a mental health problem, um, including a, a, a drug or alcohol problem, um, and they wanted to progress a career or, you know, a new start in life, but they were worried that their mental health problems might put a stop to it, what would you say to them? What would your words of wisdom be? Um, <clears throat> no words of wisdom, but I would say <laughs> that there is a way to turn every, every liability into an asset. So I can't think of a greater career liability than spending a year as a patient in a psychiatric hospital. And yet, it was my greatest asset. Yeah. Now, I think it's possible to turn every single liability into an asset because these moments of self-hatred, the experience of desperation, of intense loneliness, of suicidal ideation, all of them equip us to be better human beings. And that's how we end up being successful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Hopefully that will inspire lots of people who are listening. And also thank you for sharing your story. Um, Absolutely phenomenal achievements in NHS healthcare. And hopefully you'll have left a lasting legacy within the NHS that will be helping other people. So thank you. Thank you. 
That's all for this week. Next week, I'm going to be chatting with Twitter's secret drug addict about anonymity in the 12-step recovery program and what it's really like working in the music industry with some of the biggest names. (laughs) 